For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, get an inside report on how firefighters are doing their jobs in the Coronado National Forest. Visit an unusual piece of aviation history as it's about to be put to use on a new mission. And hear how an inmate in the Arizona correction system found purpose in studying evolution, religion, and philosophy while behind bars. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Wildfires can be both devastating and beneficial to our public lands, so managing them properly poses unique challenges. In recent weeks, the burrow, the fry, and the lizard were among dozens of fires that have charred tens of thousands of acres in Arizona's Coronado National Forest, which covers a wide swath in the southeast. Next, Tony Paniagua speaks with Heidi Schul of the Forest Service, who tells us more about her agency's techniques. Heidi Schul from the Coronado National Forest, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. So let's begin with a fire. When you first hear about one, what happens next? When a fire is reported, we engage in what's called initial attack. We will send our forces to try and put the fire out. Uh, a lot of times we're successful. It'll be limited to less than an acre or a couple of acres at the most. Uh, if that's not successful, we go into what's called extended attack. In either case, our resources can order assistance if needed. If it's if too much for our crew or engine or wh whoever responds, they can order additional crews, they can order additional engines, aircraft, whatever they think they need to help them get a handle on it. Do you have firefighters on standby at each of your locations, your districts? We have firefighters on our permanent staff at each of our ranger districts. How big is that staff typically? Uh, it depends by ranger district. We'll usually have two engines per district. Uh, again, that varies and the staffing on each of those varies also. So each fire is completely different from the other? Each fire is an individual incident. And how do you go about determining what, how to fight that particular fire? Well, we look at what's the cause, and sometimes that's easily identifiable, sometimes it's not. All fires are investigated. If we know it's a human-caused fire, if there's no lightning in the area, then we have no choice but to go full suppression, that is, put the fire out. If it's a natural ignition caused by lightning, then we have some options. We can manage the fire for multiple objectives. That can be full suppression in the area where there may be values at risk, such as homes or communities or recreation sites, that type of thing. We can be managing that same fire in another area where it's maybe doing some good, performing its natural role, clearing out excess vegetation on the landscape. And we can encourage it and manage it to keep doing that work um, as it should do in nature. And what about the water supply? So that's going to be dependent on the accessibility of the fire. If it's close to a road, then our fire engines have pretty long hoses and our firefighters can put them out with those hoses in the engines. If it's in a more remote area, we'll need to rely on aircraft, helicopters and air tankers dropping water and fire retardant, which actually don't put the fire out, but they can assist firefighters on the ground by slowing things down and allowing the firefighters to do their work. And the sources of water for those uh, aircraft is going to vary depending on where we are. 
Sometimes we can enter into agreements with ranchers to dip out of their stock tanks. Uh, On the Burrow Fire, for example, we were dipping out of Rose Canyon Lake, which is a recreational lake and a fishing lake. Uh, And we were um, filling tanker trucks with City of Tucson water and hauling that water up Mount Lemmon to replenish Rose Canyon Lake, to replenish what was removed. What about aircraft and special equipment? Uh, Who handles that or who do they belong to? We put aircraft on contract before our active fire season. All of the equipment that we will use during fire season has to be inspected. The operators have to be qualified and things need to be contracted in advance. So when we have an incident, then we can order things that are already ready to roll. In the case of aircraft, um, there are single engine air tankers we can use. There are regular air tankers and very large air tankers. There are also helicopters. We put a helicopter on contract. We have three separate ones on three of our districts that will contract for our active fire season. Then should additional help be needed, we can order other resources. And then once the fire is out, there are other challenges to the land and to the people in that area. Correct. Uh, Fires, they do have their natural place on our landscapes. However, if they burn at a high degree of severity, that can damage soils and damage watersheds. A lot of times vegetation is removed, which has been protecting uh, the soil surface. Roots have been lost that hold the soil in place. So we look at downstream effects. Will there be soil erosion? Will there be flooding? All of these things can affect communities, homeowners. And so we will call in a burned area emergency response team, also referred to as a bear team, to analyze the severity of the burn and to identify what some of the downstream effects may be and potential mitigations for those effects. In a typical year, approximately how many fires are caused by people and how many are caused by natural causes such as lightning? It's usually about 50-50, and this year is no exception. And you're asking people as they go out in the next few weeks to please be very careful and pay attention to the weather conditions. We're in monsoon season now, and situational awareness is important, just as it is any time you're out recreating. So we're asking people to prepare, you know, look at the weather forecast, check the fire restrictions, know before you go, and prepare for your trip so you can have a safe and enjoyable time while you're out there. Be careful with those fires, and also fireworks are strictly prohibited. Fireworks are always prohibited on national forest lands. All right, Heidi Schul from the Coronado National Forest, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Heidi Schul says wildfires used to be considered a summertime phenomena due to hot, dry temperatures, but in recent years, they have become a year-round threat. Tucson International Airport recently lost a longtime resident, a Lockheed L-1011 jumbo jet that was based out of the airport for more than 20 years. It was once known as Evangelist Pat Robertson's Flying Hospital. The plane hadn't left the ground since 2001 until last Friday, when it left for its new home in Kansas City. Zach Ziegler tells us the story of the plane's history and its new mission, educating children about aviation. A jumbo jet taxiing around Tucson International Airport is not a common sight, but at the end of last week, one could be seen pulling up to the executive terminal in the ground floor of the airport's old tower. 
The plane's new owner, Kansas City-based nonprofit TriStar History and Preservation, offered the public a chance to see the plane, which has called Tucson home for nearly two decades, before it heads to its new home. Kerry Floyd is president of TriStar. This airplane, a little background on it, was born in 1974, September. It flew for a few different airlines, Pacific Southwest, then Worldways Canada, and later Air Peru. And it was sometime after that that it was picked up, probably in about 1994, 1995, for another not-for-profit based on the East Coast. And their idea was they wanted to be able to have a big airplane to fly into areas that were blighted areas to be able to provide medical relief missions. That nonprofit was Operation Blessing International, an organization founded by televangelist Pat Robertson. The plane flew around the world to help people, but would be parked in Tucson when not in use. In 2001, in July, they parked it pending the next round of medical relief flights, and then everybody knows what happens in September, and they decided that it was really too much of a target. The plane didn't move much after that, and in late 2015, it was sold to TriStar. The company spent the last year and a half getting the plane in operating condition. The day before taking off for its new home, Floyd and the rest of the crew decided to open up the former flying hospital to the public. You have a waiting room. This is a this was a pharmacy, right, and a triage area. My tour guide is Chad Casel, a mechanic for the crew that brought the plane back to life. This was an actual operating room. This was uh, this was the dentist chair. The plane hadn't started for about five years when Casel and the crew got their hands on it. And what's funny is, is the first time we started the engines, they started right up. From there, the crew checked everything over to get the plane flight ready. This is the clean room. The doctors actually clean their hands. All the large hospital equipment is still in place. Beds are strapped down in the waiting room, and the sinks where doctors prep for surgery still look ready to go. Went into the operating room and actually started operating. At the front near the cockpit is Dusty Spain one of the pilots who will take the plane to its new home. He helped train the flight crew who flew the flying hospital to places in need, and now he's helping it travel once more. Well, this particular plane is just so modified, it's unlike anything that's ever been built with this interior. He says Tucson's dry air has played a big part in keeping the jet in good shape. And this thing's set for 16 years. The seats aren't cracked, the leather's not cracked, everything is great. After Spain and the rest of the crew get the TriStar experience back to Kansas City, Kerry Floyd says the final work will begin. To decommission some of the hospital equipment that's on board. From that point, we're going to do some paint work on the outside and get it to the best optimal appearance. That's when the jet will cease looking like the flying hospital it used to be and start looking like its new self an education center where students will learn about science, technology, engineering, and math with an emphasis on aviation. He hopes the curriculum will educate and the jumbo jet's massive size will inspire. 177 feet long, 174 feet from wingtip to wingtip, and roughly 250,000 pounds sitting here without fuel on it. It's, it's a behemoth airplane, and to be able to walk up, see it, touch it, have all excess passes, bring them up inside, take them to the cockpit, answer all their questions. The portion that used to be medical facilities will be turned into an open lab, and the passenger area, which used to hold 65 hospital staffers while in flight, will become a classroom. Mechanic Chad Casel says he's happy the jet remains as one of eight L-1011s in service, and not like the other 242 of the model Lockheed built. Instead of this aircraft going 
and getting recycled. It's getting a whole second life to have, uh, have new importance. A second life that this crew hopes will inspire the next generation of people in their field. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Zach Ziegler. You can see photos of this unusual aircraft on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. In 1991, at the age of 20, Gary got into trouble. He was using a lot of drugs, he'd done a little time for burglary, and he was on parole, which he promptly violated. When his parole officers tried to arrest him at a mall in Tucson, he fired a gun into the ground to create a distraction. At the time, this offense carried a mandatory sentence of life in prison. So much time when I didn't hurt anybody, nor did I intend to hurt anybody. Uh, to me, that seemed instinctively very wrong, you know. When he first got to prison, Gary tried to escape, assaulting two guards in the process. That earned him a year in solitary confinement. Inmates call it the hole. I would just like walk back and forth and just think, you know, what happened in my life? What will it really went wrong? What's wrong with the system? It was just like, it just seemed so bizarre to me that it seemed like the problem was much bigger even than me. <laughs> That is an excerpt from a long-form radio story by independent producer Mark Betancourt. It's about Gary Shepard and what he's chosen to do with his life behind bars. It's not uncommon for prison inmates to find religion or become devout followers of a faith or political system. There's plenty of time to think about life and fate and how you may have ended up in prison. What isn't common is for an inmate to construct their own meaning system, essentially brick by brick from a combination of evolutionary science and Eastern philosophy. But that is what Gary Shepard did and continues to do. In exploring Shepard's story, Mark Betancourt met Troy Froelich, who is now a free man after serving 24 years in prison for bank robbery. During that time, Froelich met Gary Shepard, and the two formed a bond over the philosophy that Shepard was creating, something that would have a positive impact on them both. I asked Mark and Troy to join me to talk about their impressions of Gary Shepard, who, despite good behavior, will not have his first chance at parole until 2028. Mark Betancourt begins. I happen to be a casual reader of an online magazine called This View of Life, which is basically evolutionary thinkers, scientists, sociologists writing about how the concepts of evolution apply to everyday life, everything from elections to how men and women interact, everything. And I happened to read an interview uh, with Gary Shepard, this uh, inmate in Arizona, who had almost created a new faith, a, a new spiritual meaning system out of uh, his studies, his self-guided studies of evolution. Uh, I actually knew that this uh, reporting project out of KALW Radio in, in San Francisco area report on this exact type of idea of people kind of doing DIY religion and creating their own versions of spirituality. And so I, I, I knew it'd be good for them. So I kind of connected the dots and pitched the story to them. What kind of special considerations that did you then run into in making the radio story? Um, were you able to uh, ever meet Gary Shepard in person? No. In Arizona, it's not allowed for media to interview state prison inmates in person. It was only possible over the phone. And even so, actually, formally, you only get 15 minutes to interview them. Uh, but I actually put myself on his phone visitation list so that I could talk to him uh, still in 15-minute increments, but uh, many, many times over. So we, we had uh, hours of probably 10, 10, 15 hours of conversations, uh, 15 minutes at a time over the, the course of a couple of months. 
Many of us through our lives have met artists and thinkers, philosophers, great rogue geniuses who might exist outside the traditional academic system, but who have really great ideas. What was it about Gary that you felt went farther than that? Because I feel like your dedication to the story and now finding out how many hours of conversation you ended up having with him, that this wasn't just here's a guy with some interesting ideas. There was something a little deeper about what you saw in Gary's story, wasn't there? Well, I think there's a difference between somebody who, first of all, is a crackpot and just has interesting ideas because they're different. I, I didn't want to use uh, that word, but <laughs> I was walking around. <laughs> so there's that. And then I think there's also people who really know what they're talking about. Troy would be better to answer this than I would, but there are probably quite a few people in prison because they have so much time on their hands who have become quite educated on certain subjects and maybe even a lot of subjects. I think that's that's not necessarily rare either. What's special in Gary's case is that everything he's learned about the world has led him to a lifestyle and a morality and, and goals in his life that have to do with altruism, that have to do with helping other people, making the world a better place, binding people together in more of a sense of community. And I think the fact that his entire goal in life is to foster altruistic community is really fascinating comedy coming from somebody who is incarcerated. Troy, I'd like to now ask you to tell us about um, your first meeting with Gary. How did he come into your life? What happened was I had been on a journey myself. I was uh, adhering to the Jewish religion at, in, in prison, which is in itself a very difficult thing because Jewish people in prison do not uh, do well. They're abused quite badly. So I'm adhering to a Jewish religion and, and also keeping kosher, a kosher diet. And uh, Gary, who was also trying to take care of himself, you know, both his body and his mind, would notice me eating things that were vegetables and that kind of Different food. than the standard mm -hmm. fare, yeah. And... Uh, he always, he'd always ask me, are you going to eat that lettuce? Are you going to eat that? And I'd say, no, no, this is for you. You can have it. You can have it. So we met that way. And uh, before long, I'm, I'm going over to his area where he lives and bringing him vegetables and then talking to him. And uh, I quickly find out there's a lot of similarities between him and I in our uh, the way that we got into prison, the things that we did in prison, and where we were at at that time in in our evolution of life. The factors that led Gary to the, the very long sentence have to do a lot more with mandatory minimums and Arizona state law uh, regarding firearms than it had to do with any criminal intent on his part. Um, that's something that comes across in the piece. But do you think that if Gary hadn't ended up incarcerated, that he would have gone as intensely down the path that he is now on? He may have. The justice system might have, you know, done the right thing by taking him off the streets. They needed him off the streets because his behavior was bad. Maybe not that long, but he was exhibiting very bad behavior. And had he not been stopped, even he himself admits that his route that he was going was not a good one. How did your friendship begin to um, transform into one where you were kind of on this co-education path, studying books? I mean, was it a matter of Gary suggesting that you read certain books, or you tell me? Yeah, it was that, and also um, I was a little abrasive with other inmates in there to the point where fights would ensue a lot because 
rather than coddle another inmate into getting on the right track, I may be very aggressive. And Gary was telling me, he's saying, you, Troy, you can't do that. You need, a, you need to find another way. I see that you want to do something good for other people, but you can't do it that way. So we developed a program. It was called Peer Education Program. And uh, the, uh, the state got wind of it, and they made it a formal program in the prison, and that was our jobs for the next decade. We train helping people to uh, get on the right path so when they get out, they can not come back. Did you find that there was a willing audience for that among your fellow inmates? Uh, did you have guys coming in to listen to what you were talking about? Oh, yeah. 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 To how big did the class get eventually? We could have up to 60 people in a class. And uh, 60 people that were wide-eyed and listening carefully because they don't really want to come back to prison. Yeah. There's a detail in the radio story that stuck out to me. Um, tell our listeners what you took with you when you left the prison in Florence. Gary uh, put together a package, of a, a success package, with every kind of information that, that I could possibly ever need or use and utilize for when I get out. So it was like a freedom manual. And uh, that, was, that was all I took out, just that. Three pieces of paper written on both sides. Give us an example of a way that that manual was used by you after you got out. So there were ways of reducing your your uh, monetary needs by going to the vegetable markets. And um, there was all sorts of resources for jobs and uh, and living spaces and everything you'd need for success. Mark, I'd like you to tell us in the process of working on this story, did you meet other people like Troy whose lives were positively impacted by Gary or... Did you meet anyone who worked in the system who saw the value in what Gary and Troy had been doing? One of the people that I talked to uh, in the piece name is um, Colleen Fitzpatrick Rogers. She was a, an addiction counselor uh, for years and years in the system in, in Florence. Um, and she knew these guys really well and spent a lot of time with them and saw what they were doing and saw how positive it was and how, how uh, intensely people listened to what they had to say. And I think she did everything that she could to help them. She supported them in a lot of ways um, because she kind of had the freedom to procure materials for them or find out information for them to contribute to their curriculum. Um, I think she really saw that in a lot of ways what they were doing was the most powerful thing that can be done for inmates because it was being done by other inmates. It was being done by people who had been there. They lived through it. It's not the same as somebody, uh, one of the staff, just kind of telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing. Troy, I... I know this is difficult to take work that you have been doing for years together and boil it down into a few uh, concepts, but basically what do you think that the philosophical path that Gary has chosen is? It really has to do with, with uh, the evolution of the human species and our inherent urges. It's the carrot at the end of the stick. That is the propellant of evolution. The things that we want, our urges. And Whatever way those urges come manifest, it's all a part of the whole picture of life. Of course, we want to course correct and find the people in, in the world who are, on, who are understanding of that this is a part of evolution and have us all get together, as Gary has called it, a super organism. Mark, tell us, what's something that you feel you learned from your experience of getting to know these men and working on this documentary? 
I actually learned something about evolution. <laughs> um, I think I, I learned more about the state of the science, um, really the cutting edge of the science uh, than I had known before. And that, that was something that Gary taught me. Um, just just talking, just having him explain to me how his everyday li life works and why he's made the choices he makes. I, I remember at some point I asked him why he had decided to uh, behave a certain way when in when there was a dangerous situation on the yard and he I, I made reference to survival of the fittest and he actually cut me off and he said no no that's an old idea in evolution it what's much more important is group level selection and I didn't know what that was and he explained that that's you know the idea that community and people working together and sharing responsibility is actually what makes people people survive and and that's what he had chosen to to propagate in in prison as a way that people could get along better and, and actually uh, make it through this ordeal. So I learned from from the radio piece that it's going to be another 11 years before Gary is even going to be considered for parole. Um, I understand that he has made some efforts to appeal his sentence. Do you think that the more people who hear Gary's story is going to improve his chances of, of tasting some freedom? When Gary was sentenced under this um, this law, it was in existence for mere months, and then it was taken away. So there was a few dozen people at most that got sentenced under that law. Most of those people are gone, and there's only about six left. When they changed the law, they didn't make it retroactive. So that law doesn't even exist. Gary came at a, at a time where there was just this horrible law that they removed quickly because they knew that was not good, but didn't get retroactive relief on it. He should be released. He should be. What I hope is that people, at the very least, get a different perspective on who's in prison. They're at least inclined to make fewer assumptions about who's there, what they're doing there, how they got there, and what they've been doing since they've been there. Um, and I think in Gary's case in particular, I hope that it makes it clear that um, if, if the system is indeed intended to rehabilitate people uh, and to make them productive members of society, just as Troy alluded to earlier, it's very possible that that's exactly what it's done in Gary's case and and actually did that years ago. And, and because of a, a sort of a, a glitch almost in the system at this point, he's still there. And I remember one of the most interesting things he said to me was that it's like you went to rehab for good reason and, and you got better and now you're still surrounded by people who are in rehab and, and haven't gotten better. And you've been there for 20 years and you can't get out. And I think that is a destructive place to leave somebody who has who has blossomed and actually traveled inside himself as far as Gary Shepard has. My guests were Mark Betancourt and Troy Froelich. The radio story about Gary Shepard was originally produced by Betancourt for KALW's reporting project, The Spiritual Edge. You can listen to it in its entirety on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.